This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Two wonderful children's book creators in the house, Sally Rippon, author and illustrator and regular co-host here on The Grapevine. And uh, her new book is out, Polly and Buster, and it's absolutely delightful. Uh, and uh, today, Andy Griffith has popped by. Um, he's pretty much loved by every kid under the age of about 10 and beyond. Um, and he and Terry Denton, of course, have brought us the 13-story Treehouse series. And uh, he's written many other things besides that and has dropped by in his capacity as Indigenous Literacy foundation ambassador and it's good to have both of you here and um congrats on your new books both coming well, out yours soon is, yours is coming soon isn't mine's it? still coming yeah. yes uh, it's not quite finished <laughs> maybe I'm still it's... putting the full stops and the exclamation marks <laughs> in the right places yes. <laughs> and you're up to 91 stories of 91 this stories of pure nonsense yeah <laughs> <laughs> i love them i've read them all and yeah. out aloud and they're just so much fun i love them and um congrats on yours too sally you're um launching polly and buster this weekend and yeah. i've had a sneaky peek of it and it's uh, just such a wonderful story of these two friends and I think it kind of works even in Reconciliation Week to kind of talk about the, the the differences in these friends but how they've just got such a they've they've overcome any of those sort of cultural divisions oh, thank as you. well that's, that's yeah. a good way actually to, to connect connect a book I guess to what we're talking about today but I also think kindness kindness is so underrated these days and so you know I think um just writing stories about kindness can't can't go astray. <laughs> I think that's what's at the heart of the treehouse too is there's a friendship between the characters even though they're not kind to each other <laughs> all the time. They can hit each other with quite um, sharp objects but um, yeah I think that's what the kids are really picking up on amidst all the chaos. There's there's a solid core of friendship. That's, and heart. That's like, yeah, heart Humor and, and heart. And there's a safe zone mm. in that friendship. Yeah. Mm. And the friends aren't, aren't perfect neither of them or in no. any of these books um they're they're not perfect but there's something just so lovable about i mean i suppose we can take them in turn i mean if we start talking with about polly and buster um uh yeah i mean polly's got her own issues in her family and she's um dyslexic and buster is just like hard on his sleeve he's a, a monster and he just expands with love and diminishes with with sadness and um yeah that's is is so easy to relate to i think when people you know, yeah, well, it's such a relief when you work up that everyone else is broken as well. <laughs> it's not just you. Yeah. And I think the thing about Buster is is that everybody needs a feelings monster in their life, you know, particularly if you have intense feelings in the way that I do. If you have someone by your side that can absorb a little bit, bit of that and maybe kind of counteract some of the, the highs and the lows, that, that that's what everyone needs, yeah. You mean like a punching bag? Yeah, but, angry, but in a lovable them. way. Yeah. <laughs> that would happen in the treehouse. Punch tree them lovably. <laughs> <laughs> and it is a real tonic. And I, I mean, is that what you felt writing it, Sally? Yeah, that- definitely. I, you know, I think at least, I don't know about you, Andy, but I think um, anytime you have experiences that are difficult in life, you think, oh, this isn't wasted. I can channel this into my writing and I can help understand. And so, yeah, you know, I've, I've had a few rough years and so, you know, I, I, I have a great outlet for that. Um, I feel really fortunate about that. Yeah, and then, yeah, and you're drawing again too, which is lovely. Yeah, <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I, I suppose I'd never thought about the Treehouse series as being about friendship, but it absolutely is. That's core to the, it's um, core to the whole story series. Isn't yeah, it? and I think it's the first book um, or first series that we had where that was really a solid thing. 
Uh, we'd always had chaos and nonsense. We did that very well. But there was never a, a sort of place where you could take refuge. And the treehouse physically is that place. But it was the friendship between Andy, Terry and Jill um, that's unbreakable, even though they were, you know, in the 78-storey, Andy had a big fight with his illustrator, which is why I'm so jealous that you can illustrate and write. <laughs> <laughs> and Andy no goes, storms off to write his own autobiography of my life without... Ter- with, uh, the autobiography of my life and not Terry's with illustrations by me and not Terry. That was the, <laughs> and then I just... I used to have a friend called Terry, but he's a big, stupid dum-dum. And, I, and, and then Jill in the book reads reads it and says it's and then what do you think and he, she goes it's not very nice and it's a bit boring and you say it's not about terry but it's all about terry <laughs> uh, so and it's lovely yeah. because it feels like your collaboration with the real terry the illustrator of the series has come has created and come from a deep friendship as with jill obviously as well i, I love it the kids are constantly surprised that you and jill actually do hang out in real life yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, Terry and I have worked together for 20 years and we've, I think, in all that time, we've maybe had one argument, if if it was even an argument. But it's pretty yeah, amazing, yeah. It's, we just can, we mind meld and we get very intense and become 10 years old again and, and <laughs> off we go. <laughs> you don't great. need a punching bag, but you can put all your feelings into a book though, do you? you can just That's right. Get it all out. That's right. You do use those, as Sally was saying, the, the rough times of the anger, you go, okay, I'm going to channel that into this particular character and, and yeah, out it goes and you've processed it. And does that help um, children when they read as well? Do you think that helps them manage their emotions or, or be able to um, totally. see someone live the emotion in a heightened way in your sense, a kind of I, fantastical slapstick way? I think that's what books are for, mm. that, that we, can pre- we can see our feelings named um, I always go back to Hansel and Gretel, um, a book where, you know, kids are abandoned by their parents, which has got to be one of the primal fears of a child. Uh, and then we see them resourcefully deal with that. Um, another fear, you know, being eaten by, by someone, cannibalism must be hanging around there somewhere in us. Um, and then they, they push the old lady into the oven, there's murder. So these are dark things. But, and I think the psychological function is that the, for the child who maybe fear is in a powerless kind of position, maybe scared of things, this allows them to put little um, names to those fears and watch kids dealing with them mm-hmm. so that you come out empowered, um, not wanting to push old people into the oven, <laughs> which is what I've had to fight against because people think if you talk about dark things, the kids will go and do them. I think it's a lot more sophisticated than that. Mm. And, uh, and the kids in my lines are the nicest kids you'll ever want to see, the readers, because uh, I think they are getting rid of a lot of obnoxious energies and in their reading. Mm. And you, I mean, um, that series in particular a- appeals to boys and, and to girls, yep. and I, I imagine that's something that you're quite conscious of as well. You look out and your, your crowds of kids would be a real mix yeah, because often people will need jerk reaction if you're talking about violent slapstick or rudeness. Oh, boys are really like that. And that is a form of kind of sexism, I think, to say, oh, girls are, you know, 
just nice and they like sweet yeah, right. and stuff. <laughs> anyone and, with girls or, or knows course, girls or anyone, anyone who's a, a human. Yeah. <laughs> and a well a well written story should appeal to a hu- any human being, not not just a particular type. So um, yeah, we've always had girls, and of course I've written. A, married to jill and she's the editor and co-writer these days so she is always there if i if i do get a bit carried away with violent slapstick as terry and i are want to do and jill will say i'm losing connection here i'm, I'm not caring about the characters anymore mm. and i go, oh, oh what do you need you need some conversation okay here's some conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so as they hit each other they'll be conversing talking about <laughs> it <That's laughs> really, yeah it's good to be articulate uh, how do you stay writing in that that same age group because i know i know kids that are now in their teens that read the 13 story treehouse and they still will go and read the new one um even if it was you know bought for their younger sibling or whatever but how do you go with that when you uh, are you consciously just writing for a, a certain age group or you're just building no a we're consciously writing for ourselves uh, with reference to everything that we loved when we were eight or nine years old which was for me a mixture of Enid Blyton and Mad Magazine uh, and horror comics Uh, and so I'm just in that space thinking would I have liked this when I was eight and can I make Terry laugh when I pitch him the idea and does his drawings make me and Jill laugh and then we that's what we're doing we're entertaining ourselves hugely with reference to what we loved and also the kids that we know read the books and I'll often take it out and read it to the in front of a group and just see if it's as funny as I think it is and 50% of the times it's not you know <laughs> I go oh I'm amusing myself here but I've lost the kids really and um, you adapt and change as yes, a result totally yeah. and you take on stuff that kids say you know sometimes you'll test jokes out with them and they'll give you a different ending and you take that on and, yeah, yeah yeah and we actually draw at some of the events now Terry can draw live and I'll say we're thinking about a, a thing where me and Terry have an int- epic space battle and all I know is I'm going to get the moon and I'm going to kick it at his butt <laughs> and, uh, and Terry will draw that. And then I'll say, anyone got any other ideas? And the kids will just be yelling out, get the rings of Saturn and use them like ninja stars. <laughs> and Terry will draw them. So we can walk away from a session like that with dozens of drawings, which I'll then integrate into the text. So. Well, kids are the most honest critics, aren't they? I mean, I've spoken on the program before to, to Josh Earl, who's a comedian, of course, but does yep. kids shows as well and has said that those shows are some of the hardest because he genuinely has no idea whether it's going to work or not when he walks out into a room of kids, whereas with adults he's got some sense, I guess, having done it for a longer period of time. Yeah, well, I'm the opposite. I I know it's going to work, but I don't know what the kids are going to yell out. (laughs) That is the fun for me. And I was getting getting ready yesterday in Sydney to show them a picture of some vegetables and I was saying, what you're about to see is the most horrible, disgusting, awful thing that you'll ever see and you, some of you will have nightmares for the rest of your life if you watch, if you see this. And a little, a girl yelled out, what is it, a picture of you and Terry? <laughs> <laughs> I said, how dare you? <laughs> a picture of Terry, yes, maybe, but not me. Gold. That's uh, so, great fun. Yeah, and how was that, the Sydney Writers Festival? I imagine it was, I mean, the lineup was incredible this year. The lineup was Including incredible. you. <laughs> well, uh, no, for me it was all about George Saunders mm. um, and he's been a long-time hero of mine. Um, for me he's like the modern-day Kurt Vonnegut. 
And uh, here he was in the flesh talking about Lincoln in the Bardo and talking so eloquently about the creative process and the editing process in a way I've never heard such clarity. Um, mm. And you can go online or find a podcast from him. I know there's a few around. Beautiful article in The Guardian talking about how he wrote Lincoln in the Bardo. So for me, this was... Um, very, very big. Yeah, and big he writes for, for children and adults. Yes, yeah, he's done short kids' books, but most famous for his short stories and now the story of Abraham Lincoln going back to the crypt to nurse his dead son, an extraordinary book. Mm. Yeah. yeah, well, recommendation there from Andy Griffiths and um, Sally Rippon also with us. And, I mean, at the, the Sydney Writers' Festival, there was a story, an Indigenous storytelling event, uh, and I suppose that sort of takes us into your work as an um, Indigenous Literacy Foundation uh, ambassador. Um, I mean, what, what's involved with that, I suppose, that, that being an ambassador for that program and, and what kind of draws you to it? Well, I got involved 10 years ago, round about the start of it, when the bookseller Susie Wilson from Brisbane uh, had visited a remote community and found that their library was being flooded on a regular basis and there was only about a dozen books left for the whole school to read. And she said, you know, we've, we can do better than this. You, know, you cannot learn to read if there are no books in your community. Um, and Indigenous, uh, remote community Indigenous reading rates are very, very low. Um, many kids never see a book in their home. They don't see a book until their first day of school at five, five years old. And if you think about that, they've lost five years of learning how, to, how a book works, or how to turn the pages. Um, many of them speak multiple languages. Um, they speak two or three Indigenous languages. And then English on a page they have to deal with at the age of five or six. Utterly foreign uh, thing. So first you need attractive books in the um, in the community. So Susie mobilised the entire publishing industry, booksellers, publishers, authors and illustrators, to... Uh, begin supplying books that they choose uh, as appropriate for their community um, at no charge into the community. So now they've they've done over to I think distributed over 200,000 books over the last 10 years um, to, to over 250 different communities. And as part of that we would do visits to some of the communities. And because I was um, doing a lot of workshops, writing workshops at the time, I was invited along. And I'd, and I'd wanted to help. Like most people, you see the, the low reading rates, you see the attendant health problems, lack of employment opportunities. Um, but it just seemed so remote. Uh, how, do you, how do you do anything? But I would go into the communities. And, and I thought, oh, I'll just do some stand-up comedy and, you know, it works in the cities. And they just looked at me blankly, these <laughs> kids, um, because they don't call out because culturally um, you don't look an adult in the eyes, number one, and number two, you don't just call out something because that kind of separates you from the group. So that's called shaming, you know. So I would not get much feedback from them at all. And my stories that I was reading were just so full of city kind of references, cars and street signs and stuff, and there are no street signs in these communities. There's nothing to read. So a lot of my stories were falling flat. And um, 
And then at some point, I remember one kid, I said, oh, my dog got run over by a car once. It was very sad. And all these guts came out of his mouth and um, I was trying to get a rise out of them. And they said, oh, that's nothing. We saw a crocodile get run over by a semi-trailer last week. <laughs> <laughs> I went, oh, really? And yeah, we got photos. And so then I've just be gradually began to be aware that these kids have a lot of amazing stories. They are living with croc, not with crocodiles in their house, but close enough. One school, Daly River in Northern Territory, was surrounded by a cyclone fence. And I made a joke, is that to stop the kids getting out? And they said, no, it's to stop the crocodiles getting in. <laughs> um, so I began to, to talk to them. They'd say we have these festivals. Um, sometimes our communities get flooded and we have to go and live on a mountain on the top of a hill for two weeks. So how do you eat? Oh, we, helicopters will drop food for us. Um, then we have to get the snakes out of our house. And, I said, you've got snakes floating around your living room? Yeah, what do you do? I said, you get a broom, you idiot, you know. <laughs> get them out. What the- um, so, yeah, so I said, can you write some of these stories down for me? You can, t- Or maybe just draw some pictures and I'll help you write sentences um, so that I can take these back and share these amazing stories with the kids in the city because you are living extraordinary lives. So that's what we... I would, we did visited many communities, getting them to draw and write these little stories. And how do they go the other way around? How are the stories received in the city? Oh, the kids love them mm. because th- this is better than anything I can make up, really. There was one group of kids um, in um, Burundula, I think, uh, who were... Um, they, they were swinging out over the river to see how high the local crocodile would jump when they... Such <laughs> <laughs> a great image. Yeah, it's amazing. Like, uh, we thought we were daring in the city. But <laughs> this is, this so is they should sell tickets for that, actually. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they got into a lot of trouble. Yeah, but, and the, the ranger shot the crocodile and dragged it up to the school and grabbed all the offenders and said, yeah, it sounds right, frightening. Mm, there's your crocodile. There will be no more of this you know, ridiculous <laughs> behaviour. And they said, that's not our crocodile. That, that one's only, that's got four legs. Our crocodile, Mr. Mr. Boombastic, has three. Um, so they knew their crocodiles by name <laughs> and uh, it wasn't the right <laughs> poor <crazy>. crocodile. Um, <laughs> I guess having been involved for, for 10 years with the ILF, have you noticed a real change in the way that communities engage with books now? Well, there's a community in Warburton, which is not Victoria, but um, 12 hours directly west on a straight red road. You can get to Warburton, one of the most remote communities. And they, the ILF has been working with them for a number of years now using their Book Buzz program, which is the early literacy in, in, in intervention. Um, it's a terrible word. Um, but they... they gift a book of six, um, no, ten board books, classic picture books and Indigenous books to the house of every child under five so that these books are in the community. They teach the brothers and sisters how to read them. They teach the parents. And often the parents don't know how to read a, a book to the child or that they should read it multiple times. As one parent once said, I've read, I've read the book once and they, they want me to read it again. I mean, what's wrong with my child? And we went, no, 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 this, this is what you do. You, you over and over the things that you love. Um, so now uh, the ILF 
um, in conjunction with the woman who runs a mother's group um, up there and Shrinkfield. Uh, now they have a regular reading time every Wednesday. Um, they, are, they have just recently translated Where's Spot, that great work of literature, which every kid loves. So they've got the local language alongside the English language and now reading books are a normal part of these child's lives, whereas before there were no books in the centre. So mm -hmm. that's in one community the difference it can make. Mm -hmm. And how do the parents respond? Are, they, um, are you finding that they're really hungry for this or are they a little bit suspicious? Or what, what's the initial reaction when a community uh, becomes involved in this program? Well, the initial um, reaction to the work of the ILF was the community's going, what, you're just going to give us free books? Mm -hmm. And we, yeah, yeah, we, we want them, you to have them. Well, what's the catch? What, what do you want from us? And we go, there's no catch, there's no... And it did take a, a little while to build that trust because so often white people have come into the communities and said, this is what we're doing, whether you want it or not, and this is what we want from you. So they're, they're not used to um, people in the city even knowing about them. They, they said, what people know about us mm. and they, they they read our stories and, and they want us to have books, you know. So building trust is a big thing and we um, are at pains to work out what each community needs from us and um, how we can deliver that. Some books, some communities will want the, the early literacy program, others it won't be appropriate, they'll, they'll need something else. And how often do you go into these remote communities? Are you still able to do it quite regularly? Um, I'm not as regular as I used to do, um, thanks to the treehouse taking up a lot more time. But uh, also there are many more um, illustrators and writers coming through now. And I collected a number of the stories that I'd written or the kids had written with me um, in a book called The Naked Boy and the Crocodile. Uh, this was going back a few years and these stories were really loved by by both the kids in the communities because they get to recognise themselves and their own experiences but also um, kids in the city uh, love these books and so now that's become a major plank of the Indigenous Literacy Foundation so people like Alison Lester uh, go into communities and they've published now well over 50 books um, for all particular communities. Um, yeah, and I mean, she's quite skilled and, and, and used to now collaborating, isn't she, on yeah. on creating books. Yeah. I wonder, I mean, both of you, I mean, I remember we got one of your early readers actually from the health nurse way back when, Sally, um, what was it called? Where a teddy is bear. Baby Where is baby? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I, I suppose are you quite conscious when you're writing a book like that? It might be someone's first book. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, you probably had the same experience, Andy. One of the joys of writing for children is that a child can come up to you and say, oh, this is the first book I ever read. And so whether it is the book that they received as a baby, um, which they're less likely to remember, or the first book they learned to read on, or the, or the first book they, they laughed when they read and thought, oh, this is an enjoyable process, not just something we have to do for homework. It's such an honour to be, to be in that role. And why would you write for adults? No idea. <laughs> well, if you can do both, that's, that's really fun. If you can keep the adult engaged uh, along with their child, 
then the child is observing the adult getting pleasure and it's That's becoming now a relationship strengthening. Mm. Are you thinking of that when you're writing your treehouse stories? You're also thinking the adult read aloud component? I am thinking of the adults, um, yeah, not they're not the primary audience. I'll always defer to what the kid needs. Mm. But if we can include the adults, that to me is the best of all worlds, mm. yeah. Yeah, and um, I, I did notice uh, when you were in Sydney that uh, there was a picture of you being interviewed by young journalists. From the for, Drinkling newspaper. Print, yeah, and I, yeah. I know that was just thrown a lifeline recently from, from readers and yeah. people um, keeping it afloat for hopefully forever. Yeah. Um, but yeah, what was that experience like? I, I mean, that's been really popular in schools, that that particular newspaper yeah, for kids. Yeah, well, they were, they were great. These girls were 10 years old and, um, they, you know, they had the lists of questions and nervously <laughs> and not knowing what to expect from me. And, uh, <laughs> Sounds like me when I first started out. <laughs> yeah, yeah oh, I totally uh, empathise. And um, But they were great. As, as they would ask me the questions, I'd see their faces. <gasps> Oh, wow. And then they'd they'd work. Okay, whose turn is the question? (laughs) Uh, But they were fantastic. Yeah, so I'm very happy for for kids to be writing at that age and and interviewing and active, you know, curious about the world. Mm -hmm. What do you find kids are most curious about you and and your work? What are sort of the common questions you get? Um, They want to know which part is true. Yeah, is it true that you live in a treehouse? Is it true that Terry washed his underpants in the shark tank and the sharks <laughs> ate them and all got sick? And I have to be very careful with these questions. I have to work out how much honest, how much, how, how, how much truth do you really want? Uh, you can't handle the truth because <laughs> you can say no. Of course, it's all made up. But for me, it's, there's a. I'm not sure how much is true or either mm. because we we do use our emotions and our, our lives in these books. There um, is a kind of truth. It's a kind of authenticity, isn't it? You know, a truth to yourself yeah. as a child and the things that were humorous Yeah, Terry is really irresponsible and often <laughs> not doing his work. And uh, Jill's really lovely. <laughs> Jill's really lovely but always correcting people <laughs> and that's not where the, this, the, how you say that. Yeah. And, and I'm angsty and bossy uh, but... <laughs> But not as angsty and bossy as the Andy in the book. He's, he's <laughs> totally out of control. <laughs> he, well, make, he makes me look good. Yeah. <laughs> Andy Griffiths is with us and Sully Riffin as well. And before we wind up, we've been talking for ages, but I wonder if um, I mean, more and more we're seeing children's book authors and illustrators involved in you know Sydney Writers Festival, Melbourne Writers Festival, whatever. Um, is there a, a growing sense of the, the role you guys play in kind of in the adult audience. I mean, we're all kids once, yeah, that we all had to start somewhere with our books and loving reading at that early age is fundamental to becoming a writer later, isn't it? So. Yeah, and and not only recognition of the importance of the children's books in that sense, but also because they are selling more than any other uh, genre. Well, the category's category going off, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so people, like readings bookshops have opened. A, Everyone wants to write a kid's a book ch- now. A, children, <laughs> a separate children's bookshop, yeah. Sun Bookshop in yeah. Yarraville has always had one. Mm-hmm. Um, and everybody yeah. wants the child to read too, so why they might hesitate on spending $25 on a book for themselves. You know, they think, oh, well, I want my kid to read, and so I think children's books will, will always be important. And not everybody wants their kids to read a, on a screen. I think last time we were in, you had the statistic, Carlia, that the um, uh, e-books have de- declined in sales and I think 
kids' books are always going up in sales. Well, the kids themselves are wanting paper books. Yeah. Um, they what want the collection too, and it's decide? the way you get them started on something. And it, yeah. they'll be thirty-five and getting the new treehouse book. They just want the collection yeah. to be there, <laughs> the complete one. Anyway, um, yeah. there are a couple of books for anyone wanting to know great. more about Indigenous literacy. There's a couple of you don't have to go out to the communities and uh, do that big trek. You, you might, but uh, two of the books I've found the most helpful and that have resonated with my experiences in community are Stan Grant's Talking to My Country, the autobiography he wrote last year, and also The Secret River by Kate Grenville. And I think for National Reconciliation Week, if we can begin to understand the history and what has been done, um, by both sides in in the, um, the you know the appropriation of the land and and the disempowerment of the cultures. These are two fantastic books mm. that will help white people educate themselves. Mm. And um, and ILF is one way that you can help people. And I, ILD Day is on the sixth of September. And they organise wonderful things like book swaps. And you can go to the Indigenous Literacy Foundation website, find out how to create a book swap in your school or library um, where people bring in a pre-loved book, put it on the table, everyone gives a gold coin donation, and then you get to take someone else's pre-loved book home. And this is one of the most wonderful events. A lot of schools are involved in that now, aren't they? Yeah, and the money is all donated to ILF. Mm. Well, thank you both for coming in. And I'm going to add to your list um, anything by Bruce Pascoe, particularly Dark oh, yes. Emu, for I, things yes. to read if you're in your, if you're um, wanting That's to top of to my list out. to read next. Oh, really? Yes. So I should have yes. brought mine in. It's, it's so worth it. Um, uh, Andy Griffiths and Sally Rippon. And uh, both, well, Andy, you, um, you've got a, a new book, The 91 Story Treehouse. Um, it's imminent a bit later in the year. So um, find out more about that on on um, Andy's webpage. And um, Sally Rippon is having a book launch this coming uh, Saturday uh, at the Sun Theatre hmm, in, in Yarraville, and it's on yeah, that's the third, and it's in the morning, so it's for morning people at nine thirty or something. Yeah, isn't it's it? free, but if you reserve a seat online, I think there's a few seats left. Okay, yeah. um, thanks for both coming in, and we'll Thank catch you, you again in the month, thanks. Sally. Thanks. And it's Reconciliation Week, which always feels really significant, but with so many anniversaries coinciding with. Um, this year's Reconciliation Week, it's 50 years since the 1967 referendum and 25 years since the Mabo High Court ruling which overturned Terra Nullius. It feels particularly momentous this year and uh, for those who want to delve into these issues as well as enjoying beautiful artworks, there's an exhibition that's just opened at the Melbourne Museum and uh, John Patton's with us. He's manager of the Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre and uh, congratulations on the new exhibition. We um, headed down on the weekend and checked it out and I managed to drag my children from the fancy um, playground there at the museum to check it out as well. And um, it was a wonderful gathering of people. You must be really, really um, happy, John. Absolutely. Thank you very much for coming down to see the launch. Uh, we're, we're really excited about the, the artworks that we've got on display at the moment, but it, it really does tie into that pivotal time in our history. And that's what we're really excited about, that we get a chance to talk about the the contributions that the community have made over many, many decades, that 1967 was pivotal as far as civil rights in Australia. And so we have artists being able to tell some of those stories. 
And I, I think, I mean, 1967, and you say it in the program for the exhibition, was when um, the, you know, a, a vote was put to the, the people of Australia. There was 90% of people um, voting yes to um, changes in the way that Aboriginal people are recognised in the Constitution. But it's kind of been morphed since then, hasn't it? There's people have a different understanding of what that vote was about in 1967. Yeah, there's lots of misconceptions that have arisen from it. And I think that's because it is such a, a massive story and it's continually growing in stature as far as how we reflect upon it. But the reality is, is when we look at things like the idea that we were a part of the Flora and Fauna Act, that's an inaccurate uh, statement that uh, it that's how we positioned it, that we felt that we were being so mistreated that we weren't considered humans, that we must be counted as far as that act. But the reality is that for us, the, the referendum was all about uh, having an opportunity to be counted as, as people, that we were going to be counted in the census so we could be contributing to the figures that help and ensure that we can move forward along with the, the rest of the population. So those misconceptions, they've in, in some ways stunted the, the progress that we could have made immediately after 1967. But that's been more or less the, the case throughout Aboriginal history that uh, there are misconceptions and uh, poor understandings of who Aboriginal people are. And so that's why we have places like Bunjalaka Aboriginal Cultural Centre and all the other institutions uh, around Australia that share our stories. So it's... You know, it's important for us to be able to, to do that. And so when, when you were putting together this, this exhibition to mark 50 years since the 67 referendum, how did you go about kind of choosing the artworks and the, the artists you, you wanted to be involved? Well, I'm very fortunate that Bunjalaka's got a really good team and we've got a new curator on board. So Stacey Piper is our, our project officer for Bunjalaka. She's a, a local Wurundjeri woman. And uh, when she was looking at the, the potential for how we tell those stories... Uh, some of the relationships we have with, with artists in the local community and across Victoria, we'd have conversations and it would just be a, an organic process. But uh, certainly there are particular artists whose styles lend themselves to telling a, a political message or reflecting on a, a political story. And so we've got a, a wide assortment of uh, different artists, but also on top of that, we've got the, the multimedia pieces that we've gone back into the archives. Stacey spent um, many, many hours in the ABC and uh, look, looking through uh, video footage showing people like uh, Bill Onus and other major political figures from the 1960s and whose stories go right back to the 1930s and 40s. So uh, it, it's, a, it's a mixed piece that we have the artistic... Uh, representations of an important time in history but also sitting alongside the archival footage that really goes in to tell you what that time period was like. And, and has the the 1967 referendum grown in significance over the decades do you think? Absolutely. It's the same case for a lot of the, the major story beats in Aboriginal history and that, that's the way I, I tend to present it because they're all part of one larger story that whether it's 1967 or the 1938 day of mourning or when the first fleet arrived and invasion began, whichever way you go, they are all part and parcel of a, a major story that forms the, the backbone of Aboriginal history. Civil rights and politics moving forward is how we reflect upon our own identities. 
And um, I mean, it's that's really, I think, potently been on display in the past uh, week with the convention coming out of Uluru with the Indigenous delegates um, officially rejecting, I guess, merely symbolic recognition in the constitution and um, advocating for a formal Indigenous representative body to be enshrined in the constitution itself. And the the words coming out of the their official document that was produced at the end of that summit was in '67 we were counted, in 2017 we need to be heard. And so there's kind of a, a sentiment um, that kind of echoes what you're talking about with um, the what what happened in 67 is not being at all an end point but as part of the progression of, of indigenous rights and and writing past wrongs in this country absolutely right that we we did need to be uh, heard in 1967 but we're at a position in history where we we need to have uh, real world practical uh, responses to the kinds of issues that we're facing uh, and each part of Australia has its own particular challenges whether it's the the Northern Territory, New South Wales, Victoria, each situation. We are a diverse array of many different cultures, let alone uh, different um, responses to our our local needs. So uh, what's really important is that we embrace and understand that as a whole. So for me, the, the biggest driver for how we move forward has always been education. And so Bunjalaka with our education programs and ensuring children understand, for one, what the 67 referendum was about and then flowing back through history and looking at all the different major turning points for Koori people and Aboriginal people across the continent and Torres Strait Islanders as well, that we've had many challenges and there are always opportunities to go forward. So Uluru presented one of those chances for us to, to voice how we feel as a community as a whole and it might not necessarily have been what the the broader Australian community might have expected but now we have a chance to to move forward and uh, answer that and and see what we can do together. Uh, John Patton's with us. He's manager at Bunjalaka at Melbourne Museum and uh, it's 25 minutes past 10. I mean, the the theme um, for Reconciliation Week is let's take the next steps. And I wonder what you hope or or see as the next steps in this process, John. I think education is always part of the the next step. And so that's really pivotal about how Bunjalaka positions itself, that when I, I think back in history and I think about all the major major people who contributed to 1967 and the, the many different organisations like William Cooper's Aborigines League or the Aborigines uh, Progressive Association up in New South Wales, the leaders of these organisations and all the people that were involved whose names we never get to hear of, they were able to do what they achieved because they had some semblance of an education. And I mean they only generally went to second or third grade level primary school so but it was quite sophisticated that campaign wasn't it because it didn't the campaign didn't start in 1967 to to get um changes to the constitution it started you know at least a decade or more before that and was quite sophisticated the campaign to kind of get out to every electorate even the the prime minister at the time menzies when they first started and so i think um i I suppose in you know i'm I'm enjoying the coverage of 50 years since the 1967 referendum because I'm relearning a whole lot of stuff about it. But I suppose that idea that, um, yeah, there's next steps to take and that we're uh, at the moment seeing uh, seeing those steps being taken. It might not be overnight, the change, but the change 
will inevitably happen. Right. Well, if Aboriginal history has taught us anything, you're, you're absolutely right that it's not going to happen overnight. That when we look at the, the leaders of the past, that we don't often hear their names. That uh, I've said many a time that when we have people come into Bunjalaka, they'll know the names of Dr Martin Luther King Jr or Nelson Mandela, but they won't know who William Cooper is or Jack Patton or Margaret Tucker, Geraldine Briggs, so on and so forth. We have many people who have done amazing things for Australian history, let alone Aboriginal history, and we don't know their names. And so that's important, that when we think about the people who did so much for us in 1967 they were influenced by a generation before them and them before them as well. So I think about Chica Dixon, who was responsible for the tent embassy or partly responsible, and he was influenced by my grandfather, Jack Patton. And I think about uh, someone like Faith Bandler, who was so strongly voiced in the 1967 referendum, who was influenced by uh, Pearl Gibbs. And so these leaders of another era have fed into 67, and now we see leaders now starting to respond to that period as well so it's it's always a, a passing of the the baton and standing up and doing what you you feel is right and so that, that's something for all of us to be a part of rather than just looking for those key leaders and i mean often when when you step into a museum there's a sense that you're kind of learning about the past learning about things that have happened previously but being at bunjalaka on the weekend particularly i guess after the the uluru summit in the past week there was a real sense of um this kind of i don't know leadership and, and activism and, and change very much happening now in the present and it's interesting to be in a museum um when that's kind of the sense rather than learning things that have happened long before feeling that you're very much part of an, an evolving process and i guess coming out of that convention treaties very much being spoken about and I know state governments including Victoria have been being advancing the treaty process do you see hope that we are entering um, I guess a more more active um, situation where treaty and 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 listening to different indigenous groups around the country and and moving to resolve past wrongs is happening more now than it was in the past because treaty really hasn't been spoken about at the, the federal level since Bob Hawke's time really it went quiet for a long time right I think treaty is a, an incredibly important thing for Aboriginal people and it can sit in many different areas, whether it is a singular treaty or it is multiple. Uh, we do seem to be approaching a consensus throughout many Aboriginal communities that treaty is the way to go. Um, so how we respond to that is really important. We need to ensure that everyone can come together and see that there is value in looking at negotiating a conversation rather than uh, dictating one. So I, I think we're in a, a time period that we'll look back on as being as important as 1967, if not more, more so, that uh, the, the conversations that uh, various community leaders are having today will impact Aboriginal people and Australia for, for generations. So really, we have a responsibility to ensure that it is all done correctly, that we take our time, make sure that it's measured, uh, that the media doesn't paint a particular story. It's more about listening. And I think, I mean, that idea of taking 
taking time is something that we we didn't have a sense of when even when um, Tony Abbott was Prime Minister. It's this idea it's going to happen at significant time. It's going to happen in May um, 2017. And that's kind of, that's out, out the window now, isn't it? I mean, it, it's going to take as long as it takes. Or do you think there is a time frame that's been worked to? I've heard uh, uh, some people in the media suggest that there is a, a time frame. Uh, whether it does adhere to that, I'm I'm not sure. You know, it, it it could very well be something that needs more time. Um, because do you get a second opportunity? Really, you, you need to have it done correctly the first time around, and you have to have the right voices in place. Well, all the best and um, I urge people to head down to Banjalaka and experience the, the permanent exhibitions that are on there and they're fantastic and uh, also have a look at the the exhibition that opened over the weekend um, that is um, uh, celebrating and um, marking 50 years since the 1967 referendum and uh, it's wonderful to have you in uh, at Triple R, John, and uh, we hope to have you in again soon and all the best with the exhibition. And how long can people see it for? How long is it on for? Uh, it's on through to November. So uh, one voice, uh, sorry, one day, many voices, Gunbu, Yangbu, Ngalabu, Bullock. So I think I've managed to wrap my tongue around that all right. So come on down and, and enjoy learning a bit about our, our history and culture and see what comes next. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.